Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello and welcome to the Gestalt U podcast brought to you by Invest Resolve, Resolve Asset Management. And today's special guest is none other than Ben Hunt, primary author and editor and founder of the Epsilon Theory content portal. And in this podcast, which I think is quite a departure from our usual discussions on the Gestalt U podcast series, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of how Ben Hunt thinks about the world from his vantage point with a background in applied statistics and game theory and the narrative machine. And obviously, Ben is a prolific writer and approaches his views on the world from an acute angle relative to how I think most of us digest media and internalize the ongoing narrative that we are fed. And I think it's really important to be able to go behind the headlines to grasp the underlying motives of the primarily public relations entities that are behind most of the messaging that we all digest from day to day. And so we wander in a variety of different directions, but with a constant theme of what the dominant motivation is for the people who are currently in charge and making decisions and have the most to lose from a political climate and a market climate that veers away from the current paradigm, how investors should think about the risks given the current equilibrium and the potential for disequilibrium, and just a better framework for how to think about markets and building a more resilient portfolio. This is a longer session than usual, but I think it's worth it. So without further ado, I bring you Ben Hunt. Please enjoy. So actually where I wanted to start, I wanted you to answer the question, who is Neb? Neb Tana. Yes. Who is that? You know, I was in one of my kind of funks because I write a lot about narrative and how narratives impact all of our lives and how we have to take back our distance and how we have to really look for this stuff and not get caught up in the machinations of, you know, what we call in game theory, the missionaries, the people who shake their finger at us and tell us how to think about the world. So I write a lot about that, but the truth is we're all hardwired to respond to this stuff. And so, so frequently I find myself getting sucked in. I'll start writing off some angry tweet. I'll react. It's usually a reaction of anger because So much of the, and that's intentional in in a lot of the, what we call missionary statements that are out there. They're not all intended to try to, in fact, very few of them are tried to, are intended to convince you of something. 
the goal is to create this emotional engagement, either of, I'll call it adulation, celebrity. Oh my God, someone famous thinks like me. I love that person. Or what I like to call a rage engagement, where it's all very intentional. And I find myself getting sucked into that. I was trying to step back from this and think, what has become of me and my the way I interact with the world? Because the, the other observation I had is that so much of what's happened to us, both at a macro level, our society, our communities, but also on a micro level to us personally, it's like the old story about how do you boil a frog without the frog hopping out of the hot water? It's just degree by degree. And then over a period of time, you look at it and you go, oh my God, we frogs are in boiling water. And so I was thinking about how my life has changed over the last seven or eight years. I mean, I remember I used to enjoy going to parties. <laughs> right? you know? This is oh such a familiar. Right? This is, yeah. we talk about this Sentiment. all the time. Yeah. yeah, I really did. I used to look forward to a conversation with neighbors. Yep. Amen. I'd go on a trip and I'd be on a flight. There'd be, I'm flying economy, right? So we've got two people sitting, you know, on the same room. I might even have, believe it or not, a conversation with someone on the plane. <laughs> Imagine that. And what I realized is, man, I just dread that now. I dread the idea of talking to other people. Sartre once said that hell is other people. That was, <laughs> and it's a great line. And, and all I would do to make an addendum to that is, is hell is other people who want to talk about politics or markets, who want to talk about our social interactions. Has it always been like that? No. What's changed? It really hasn't. Well, it, there is a polarization. Again, it's a lot of this is organic. It's not a conspiratorial smoke-filled room thing, but some of it is. The is part is that our devices, our smartphones and the like, these are designed to be dopamine transmitters. Our I'll call it the platforms, the media, and the messages in which we consume, they are delivered to us in very much more effective ways. It's both the 24-7 shaking a finger at you through the CNN, the MSNBCs, the CNBCs. These started with sports, which is usually where a lot of these things start. New media systems usually start with porn and sports. The public one, you know, the non-porn one is ESPN, the 24-7 programming. And so what do you do if you have a 24-7 programming? You, you have to invent the programming to fill the time. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have everywhere today, 24-7, I'll call it dopamine transmission, little zaps of sports now, but business, and here I'm doing air quotes, news, mm -hmm world, air quote, news, political news, it is intentional. It is a business model. And it's changed the conversation. It's changed the way we interact Absolutely. with each other, engage Absolutely. with each other. There is no utility. There's no utility like there used to be utility when you had, was it Brokaw? Who was the, Tom the voice? The voice of America that came on at night for 30, oh, Walter 40 years. Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite, that's it. It's a Peruvian night. You right, know, yeah. don't know a lot of stuff. <laughs> he used to run the narrative based on a 24-hour time period where they could gather data, assess it, figure out what's actually going on, and then communicate the American values. And possibly there's more utility to that narrative than there can be in a 24-hour 
network where you have to fill in the time. And when you are trying to win eyeballs, is it winning eyeballs through dopamine, which is another utility for the network rather than the utility for society? Well, here's the distinction I'd make. You ask, has it always been this way? What has always been this way is that, again, I, I'm not saying this as a, well, it's kind of a bad thing, right? I was going to say it's neither good nor bad. It just is. But what it is, is that institutions of power, political institutions, corporate institutions, they want to promote and instill a certain message. In a sense, it was easier in the Cronkite age. This is the old line about Lyndon Johnson that he lost his chance at winning a re-election when he lost Cronkite over the Vietnam War. And that once he lost Cronkite, he lost America. So there was a more, I'll say, hierarchical and clear delineation of how messages would be transmitted to us, the people. But what is different today is, is A, it's more fragmented. There's not a single voice. It's not people just tuning in to the network news at 6.30 or, or whatever. It's more fragmented now. There are many more voices. But those voices now, because of the form and the function in which they give us the information, again, 24-7, designed to be snippet effective on our dopamine receptors, the messaging is much more effective and influential. And the messaging, again, is designed not to convince, not to have a conversation. It's not a two-way messaging system, right? It's a one-way messaging system where the business model is satisfied through either the adulation engagement, the celebrity engagement, or the rage engagement. So because the business model is satisfied this way, by business model, I mean both a political business model, the Democratic Party couldn't survive without Trump being in office. And the Republican Party couldn't survive without Pelosi and the Democrats. You have to have that enemy. The system works so well to encourage this sort of polarization. And what is really troubling to me, to get back to the neb to nub, you know, my name backwards, is that this business model and social model now I'll say trickles down, it impacts us on the micro scale. It impacts us in our, in our own minds and our conversations with ourselves. It impacts us in our conversations with the people who are most important to us in our lives, our families. And it's a polarization, both at a national scale, the parties are farther apart than they've ever been. But more importantly to me, and this is what I was trying to communicate, it's a polarization and division of ourselves and our relationship with our families. And that's the really tragic thing. It separates us as we become more insular as a survival mechanism. It also means that we become less connected emotionally to the broader community, whether that's at the, the neighborhood level or at the municipal level or at the state level or at the country level or at the global level. It becomes a, an about me instead of about us. So tell me a little bit about the mission of Epsilon Theory and how you're trying to communicate a more hopeful message about that. Before I talk about what I think we can do to repair the damage that's been done, let me give you another historical example of when the same process happens and the path I think we're on. Because this is something that has happened in the world before. It's different today. You know, it's always a little different because particularly the role of technology, that's an arrow that goes up and to the right and it makes things different. 
and why I think what we're experiencing today is much more accelerated in its time frame and the way it's impacting us. There's this wonderful play. You know, I was mentioning Sartre earlier. I'll, I'll mention Ionesco today. He wrote this play called Rhinoceros. And it's about a central European town. He, he grew up in, it was uh, Romania, between World War I and World War II, leading up to World War II. And the play is, is about something that another great writer and thinker, Hannah Arendt, called the banality of evil. That was her famous phrase. She got that from watching the Nuremberg trials, the war trials after World War II, the banality of evil, that, these, that the evil people who perpetuated the final solution and the genocide, they were nebishes, they were bureaucrats, they weren't these towering heroic figures, they were just these banal evil men. And the play Rhinoceros is about how all of a sudden people in the town start turning into rhinoceroses. It's the theater of the absurd, they call it. And, and it's a rhinoceros, of course, you know, more and more people just turn into rhinoceroses and they start rampaging through the town. The first people to turn into rhinoceroses are the kind of goons of the town, kind of the kind of right wing authoritarian types in, in the town. But pretty soon it's just people just start turning into rhinoceroses. And the reaction of everyone else is not, oh, my God, people are turning into rhinoceroses. This is awful. And this is the brilliance of the play and, and what happened then in Romania and what's happening with us today. Now, the response is, oh, look, another rhinoceros. Oh, look, another rhinoceros. And the people, ultimately, there's one person who doesn't turn into a rhinoceros. And again, he's not some heroic figure. It's a very sad, difficult life because everyone else is now this rampaging rhinoceros. The right-wing authoritarian goons were the first to turn into rhinoceroses, but the worst are the intellectual, I'll call it left-wing, because they know better. That's why it's worse. They know better, and yet they become rhinoceroses too, willingly. They want to become rhinoceroses because they think it's effective. And that's what happens, I think, on this kind of, to so many of us today. You ask, you know, well, we lose contact, and what can we do, and we want to take action. I think we so frequently can lose our souls, and I have no better word for it than that. We lose our souls when we become rhinoceroses because we think that, oh, well, I've got to adopt these mechanisms of power. I've got to become a rampaging authoritarian rhinoceros also because I want to get my guy elected. And it's that, I think, almost more than anything else, we have to resist. The first step is to recognize, oh my God, you know, this is not healthy for us as a society, for us as individuals, for our families, for the way that the messages are, are really changing our behavior. For a lot of people, the first reaction is, okay, we got to fight. And that means, oh my God, it's that Donald Trump. So I'm going to become a rhinoceros on the left, and that's going to be what I'm going to do. Vice versa, you have people say, oh my God, I can't believe the way those socialists are trying to take over the world. It's MAGA all the time for me, baby. I'm going to get on that train. These are two forms of rhinocerousnesses, <laughs> right? And I get it. And this is what I was trying, one of the things I was trying to write about when I was writing about my, this alter ego of my neb to nah. I feel it. I get angry. I get drawn in by this. But what we've got to do is we've got to take back our distance, our distance of mind, our distance of heart, 
from the people who they're not our family. One of the big things I really that really bugs me of modern society is companies trying to portray themselves as your family. They're not. Your family's your family. Your pack, what I like to call it, the people who should mean something to you and you mean something to them, are people who treat you in a non-instrumental fashion. Corporations, any company, treats you in an instrumental fashion. As in you're an instrument to serve their objective function. You are a function. means to an end. Yeah. You're right. a means to an end. Right. The core thing, and this again, this goes back in every religion, every secular philosophy that's worth an ounce, is that at its core, we should treat people not as a means to an end, but an end in themselves. And we should expect that to be reciprocated. This is do unto others as others would do unto you. This is Aristotle, what is the good life? It is living a life with, he called it a magnanimous life, a great heart. And what he meant by that was to have great-hearted friends, people who saw you not as a means to an end, but as an end in itself. And you treat them the same way. It's a really simple message. It's a message that's thousands of years old. It's a message that it's never been more important to get out there again than today. So you ask, what am I trying to do with Epsilon Theory? It's that. It's really that. It's find your pack, meaning people who treat you as an autonomous human being, who respect your autonomy of mind, and people who are you extend that same degree of trust and faith. It starts in our families, but it can be a lot bigger than that. That's how we survive this. We find our pack. You're not going to find it in your company. You're certainly not going to find it in your political party. That's going to be your first reaction. It certainly is mine, but that ain't where you're going to find it. It takes hard work, but it's the only thing that can protect us here is to find your pack. It ain't your company. It ain't your political party. So one of my favorite essays of yours is where you differentiate between the concept of pack and the concept of flock. Yes. Can you drill down a little bit on that? Absolutely. So I live out in the woods. I'm a dilettante farmer. My grandfather actually had a real working dairy farm in northern Alabama back in the 20s. And I just know how much he would just laugh at me, getting on my tractor and driving around and moving stumps and picking up rocks and stuff. It's a joke. It's a hobby. It's also been one of the most intrinsically rewarding and wonderful things in my life because you know how it is, guys. I mean, our world of investing and the like, we live in a world of abstraction. We live in a world of what I like to call our our cartoons in the technical sense, abstractions of abstractions, right? (laughs) And there is a real power in disconnecting from your dopamine machine and either with your own muscle power or with John Deere horsepower, connecting again with the real, the dirt. And life on this hobby farm, and look, I'm, it's a series of both choices and being fortunate to be able to do this, but we can all disconnect from the dopamine devices and try to connect with the real For me, an important part of that has been relearning and then being able to tell people about lessons I see in nature. 
from the connecting with the real and to bring it back to this world of abstraction that we live in constantly. And so what I see, we keep sheep. Again, these are pets. This is not some commercial operation. We have goats, we have sheep, we have chickens, ducks, and horses, and we have this menagerie out there. I think of them sometimes as like works of art, like living works of art, because I can just watch them. And the sheep, I love watching the sheep, because people think that sheep are stupid. It's an insult today to say, oh, you're the sheeple, not the people, the sheeple, that you're just being led around and you're stupid. That ain't sheep. Sheep aren't stupid. They are just differently intelligent than other animals, than humans. But they are not stupid animals at all. They are incredibly willful animals, in fact. So we talk about the insult of, oh, you're just being a sheep. You're saying, oh, you're just easily led. Sheep are not easily led. They're not. And this is why in the old stories, the shepherd, you've got to be a good shepherd. It's a full-time job to be a shepherd because sheep are not easy to lead. The reason they're not easy to lead, the reason that they are not a pack like coyotes or dogs or wolves, we think of that as being a, a pack. The reason they're not easy to lead is because a flock, which is what we call obviously a group of sheep, Each individual sheep is utterly selfish, utterly thinks of other sheep in an instrumental sort of way. Very different from a pack. In a pack, you have real sacrifice. Everyone who knows a dog has a dog because a dog, they're a member of your pack. Just so wonderful, right? And we all know that expression of a hang dog look. When your dog does something wrong, Your dog knows he or she's done something wrong. They can express that hangdog look. It's a sense of shame. Oh, my God, I've been a bad boy. Sheep never feel that. If you see everyone instrumentally, you have no sense of shame. That also means you have no sense of honor. You have no ability to take a hit for the team and to sacrifice anything for the group. That's not what a flock is. A flock is... It's utterly other-regarding, which is the intelligence that sheep have. They are constantly watching the other sheep, constantly. But not because they're watching out for them, like you would find in a pack. They're watching them to see what sort of advantage they can gain in terms of, oh, there's a good bit of grass, or, oh, that sheep looks agitated. Is it a predator? No, it's not a predator. Oh, good. I'll scoot in there and get that sheep's grass while they're distracted. So in essence, the rhinoceros are a flock. Absolutely. And the epsilon theory pack is what you're trying to create is something that is more selfless and trying to make the pack stronger. Yeah, I forget who it was. It was, I think, God help us. It was maybe Nassim Taleb, you know, I first heard this wrong, (laughs) right? So so he, he was saying that he's a communist with his family. He's a socialist in call it his town. It goes from there, you know, it's you're a Republican at the state level and you're a libertarian, you know, at a national level. What it means to be a PAC is to have that, you can call it a socialist spirit. It's that you are willing to make a sacrifice. You are treating everyone as an end in themselves, not as a means to an end. And you expect the same in return. It's not that a PAC is a group of I'll call it lemmings, you know, people just, I'm looking for reasons to sacrifice. 
A pack is not an irrational thing. It's a very rational thing. But a flock can be, these are both, I'll call them equilibrium points to use these kind of $10 game theory words. These are balancing points where once a flock, uh, I'll call it equilibrium is set, there's nothing that's going to change it from that. If you're in a flock of sheep, you're an idiot if you start looking out for the other sheep. Because there'll be no reciprocity. There'll be zero reciprocity. You have to behave as if you're a sheep as well. And it's the same thing with a pack. Even if you don't feel it in your heart of hearts that, oh, I want to be, have reciprocity and the like, if you're with a group of, in a well-functioning pack, the rational decision is, okay, okay, I need to at least act like I'm that. I think that captures things really, really nicely. I think, is it safe to say, or would you directionally agree with the statement that as a society, as a culture, we have evolved to expect flock behavior. less reciprocity and oh, therefore totally. we are less inclined to make sacrifices in advance of or in pursuit of the advancement of the society the community that we once were and that is a major motivating factor in the fact that we've all become more selfish and, and insular it's everything and it's intentional because the existence of i'll call it packs is very threatening to a national or a mass society control. It's very threatening to a political party, whether it's a single political party like in China or a dual political party system like we have here. These I'll call it local bastions of social power, which a PAC really is, mm-hmm. it's very threatening. So there's both a business model to polarize and divide us, to fragment us, and there's a political model for this as well. And that's why this is so hard to resist. You can talk about this in kind of dry game theory terms. I can talk about it in kind of real life farm terms. And I told this story in one of my notes. I think the the notion of flock behavior really hit home for me. We have four sheep today. We used to have six. So this was a couple of summers ago. My daughter comes in in the morning. So our daughters take care of all the animals, which is another great thing. Can't even convince my children to walk the dog. So that's a Herculean (laughs) achievement in my view. It's really interesting because here's the thing. If our daughters don't take care of the animals, they will die. And that's a responsibility and that's a a lesson. (laughs) Because when you are around animals on a farm all the time, Animals die. There is that circle of life, and, and there's a lot to be to Up said about Up close and personal Up on a farm. Up close and personal, yeah. right? You have that responsibility to these animals. You belong to the animals more than they belong to you. And learning that has just been, I can't describe how powerful and important that lesson is for dis- instilling this understanding of what a pack is and the responsibilities we have. But she comes in one morning and she says, oh, my God, Dad, you've got to come out and help me. She named two of the sheep. They're dead. And I go, wait, what? Right? What, what's going on? So rush out to the pen area where they spend the night in their shed. And this was kind of early days of us keeping the sheep. We had made the mistake. If we set up, and this is how you feed a lot of times horses. You set up what's called a hay net. So it's a net with very kind of loose rungs in it where you put hay, a couple of flakes of hay in it, and then the animal can go up and pull at it. You keep it elevated in this net so that it's not just on the ground and you don't build up this huge mass of hay anyway. So it's called a hay net. 
Well, two of the sheep had figured out, oh, I can get more of the hay because we've got the six sheep competing at the hay net by sticking, by wriggling my head inside one of these loose rungs of the net. So one of them did it. Another one did it. Two sheep got their heads inside the rungs of the net. And then, and you sometimes see this in kind of feeding behavior of herds, they'll start to jostle each other because they're trying to move another one out of the way to get more food. Again, that's all they care about. It's what's in it for me. It's this profound selfishness, profound selfishness. And it's very different from other animals. Goats will, oh yeah, it's your turn to eat. Or dogs, same way, right? But sheep, profound selfishness, but very smart. So they start, the whole group of sheep started moving clockwise, the whole around the net. And it started then to turn the net. And so it slowly tightened the rungs around the necks of the two sheep. And so they kept on doing this even unto death. They strangled themselves through this profoundly selfish behavior. It was a rough day. But it's an image and a, an example that just is so searing to me to pursue these profoundly selfish and I like to call it other regarding behaviors because they're always looking for an advantage from another sheep. They are incredibly aware of all the other sheep. They're not single-minded or isolated. They're part of this flock. But their other regardingness is to achieve some sort of advantage. And they will pursue that even unto death. It's interesting. This is reminiscent of the, the whole left, progressive leftist oppression Olympics. Like my wife is very much born and raised in New York City, private school kid. She, over time, has become a rhinoceros. She doesn't know how she became a rhinoceros. She just knows she's an ardent rhinoceros. And what that means is that if you are not a rhinoceros as well and talking about the night rhinoceros narrative, you're immediately an enemy, which is something I actually want to ask you. How do you, because she sees me as my own rhinoceros on the other side. But the other thing is within the rhinoceros crew, there are these levels of oppression. These groups are all progressive leftists, but they're all trying to go after their own agenda. And it becomes a jockeying of who's more oppressed. It's like they're starting to destroy all the values because they, they only care about their particular oppression and whoever's more oppressed gets to move forward and everybody else gets to move downward within that rhinoceros flock. It's very selfish. It, is, it has nothing to do with the general theme of traditional liberal values. It is very much an egotistical, self-centered, selfish process. These phenomena that we're talking about the intentional and organic develop of, let's call it flock culture, intensely selfish, intensely other regarding. There are two primary other regarding emotions. Sheep only have two emotions. And this is what is now pervasive in our culture as well. The most powerful other regarding emotion is jealousy. Whether it's you read Othello, the best song about jealousy is The Killers, Mr. Brightside. It's the best song ever written about jealousy. And when you experience jealousy, you know how that it just it consumes you. It's such a powerful, again, what I call an other regarding emotion. 
The second most powerful emotion is schadenfreude. Jealousy is the pain that we feel at others' pleasure. Schadenfreude is the pleasure we feel at others' pain. Those are the two other regarding emotions, jealousy and schadenfreude. And you see that play out in the dynamics of groups like you're describing, or the internal dynamics of groups. And this is absolutely true on the right. It's everywhere. This is not a left-right thing. This is a modern society, what the hell is happening to us kind of thing. We are now transformed by jealousy and schadenfreude, because those are two emotions that generate enormous amounts. Again, I get back to dopamine and both rage engagements. Oh my God, I can't believe this person said that. Or these adulation engagements. It's all of a type. And so we see, again, jealousy and schadenfreude as the defining emotions of our time. And these are the emotions of the flock. These are the emotions of the flock. And it's so different from the emotions of the pack. In practical terms, how would you get the point across that a flock, that your flock, for example, is not jealous, is not jockeying for position? How are they different? Because the biggest problem that I have is I'm seen by my liberal friends as another rhinoceros on the right. Whereas I see myself as applying heterodoxy and deferring ideas, having nuance in the conversation, but they're incapable of seeing that. They see me as the same thing, just with different values. So I tell you exactly what you have to do, what one must do, both to bridge the gap and to strengthen, I'll call it pack behavior in your own group. And you're not going to like this answer. The answer is you have to forgive and you have to take the first hit. And you have to keep taking a hit. You have to take the L. So how does that play out? I'll tell you exactly how it plays out. You, there's this long, and this kind of gets into, I hate to say that my dissertation, one of my books, is about game theory. Because I hate to say, oh, it's game theory. It's become such a trite phrase today. Because idiots say, it's game theory. I hide it, but... I have to talk a little bit about game theory right now, right? Because what game theory is, is strategic interaction. What game theory is, we're familiar with these kind of two-person games like Prisoner's Dilemma. It's the, the source of every police procedural show on television. We're familiar with the game of chicken because it's in movies so much of the time. And, you know, it's Kevin Bacon driving his tractor, the other guy driving his tractor. But is that a Footloose reference? That's, that is a Footloose <laughs> reference. It is indeed. Yeah, so I'm, I'm dating myself, right? Yeah, yeah. Before me, it would have been, my dad's generation would have been Rebel Without a Cause. The most important games, though, are the games of, of how groups interact. And you can model what does it take to change group behavior. Because we were talking about this earlier. Even if... I'll call it a full-hearted, magnanimous person, and you find yourself in a world of sheep with flock behavior, it is irrational to behave like a full-hearted, magnanimous person because you're just going to get eaten up and tossed out. You're not going to survive. There has to be a critical mass of full-hearted, magnanimous people. It's kind of like we're seeing with the spread of coronavirus. You have to set up a cluster of people who you interact with on a regular basis, who will treat you as you're treating them in a non-instrumental way. If you can create a cluster, there are advantages to being in that cluster, actual advantages, advantages over the sheep, the mass of sheep that are in the, in the flock. 
your cluster will begin to grow. Your cluster will absolutely begin to grow. And you can demonstrate this in they do these real-world tournaments where you have groups of people and you devise strategies for how you're interacting with them. You can model this in different simulated environments and the like. But the way to change things, and it's the only way to change things, is to create these clusters of pack-behaving people within the larger environment of the flock, flock environment that we all live in. And to find your pack, to find your pack, there's a very simple strategy to do that. And it's called tit for tat, which means you're not going to be an idiot. If you're among a lot of sheep and they're sheep and they have no desire to ever change from being a sheep, you're going to open yourself up, say, hey, wolf over here, I'm looking for pack members. And so you're going to take a loss. You're going to leave yourself open to being smacked by the sheep. You're leaving yourself open to taking the sucker payoff in the interaction with this potential wolf or potential sheep. Once they prove themselves to be a sheep, right, once they smack you for, once you take the L in that one-on-one relationship with that person, it's harsh, maybe not, you write them off. They're not going to be part of your pack. But then you go to the next person. You leave yourself open, vulnerable to taking a loss. Whatever that means in the relationship we're talking about can be economic, and more usually it's a loss of in the heart. But this is what you do because you will find other people who will not take advantage of your openness, your willingness to take a loss, but they will say, no, I'm going to cooperate with you. I'm going to leave myself open for a loss to you. And once you do that, once you start finding those people to be in your pack, watch how that cluster starts to grow. It really is like the spread of a disease, except in a good disease. This is how our world changes. It doesn't happen from the top down. It does not happen from the top down. It only happens from the bottom up. It only happens from people finding their pack, and that requires leaving yourself open to taking a hit, but you will find other people who will reciprocate, and then you stick with that group, and that group will grow. It'll be slow. It'll be really slow. It'll be nothing, 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 and then boom. Okay, so I'm going to take a little shift on the conversation. It actually is a nice segue because I think it's useful to think about markets in the context of herd behavior and think about the motivation of agents in markets, investors, along the exact same axes as you described, jealousy and schadenfreude. And think about how that plays into what we're observing in markets at the moment. And then recognizing that these are the dominant motivations for actions in markets, reframing how to think about the investment process. And let's apply it specifically to the business. The business of investing. Of investing. Because, and you guys know this really well, we've all lived this, is that the hardest time for an asset manager or a portfolio manager, somebody who's responsible for other people's money, OPM, the hardest time you have from a business perspective 
is not when, oh my God, the market's down and we're all down. The hardest time is when you're not up as much as the market is. That's the hardest time. 100% yes. That's the hardest time. Is that relative, that underperformance? This is jealousy and schadenfreude. Because your client is looking around and say, oh, you made me 10%. Yeah, but wasn't the S&P up 20% last year? What the hell, guys? What are you doing? What are you doing? My neighbor over there, he's got his Robinhood app, and you know he did a lot better than I did with you guys managing my money. How about that? This is what pervades our business. And again, in so many ways, big ways, little ways. We were at dinner last night, and we were talking about if you're an active manager, you can't take a big position in the big companies like Apple or a Microsoft or a Google, what story are you going to tell your investors? Oh yeah, I really like Apple. I've got some edge on understanding Apple. No, you take these smaller companies and as it turns out, these those companies are actually the ones that are really expensive on any metric you want to take. So it makes it just even more difficult for you to outperform. But our whole business, particularly the business, not just the business of of active management, systematic management is the same way. The business of managing other people's money is on this foundation of jealousy and schadenfreude. And it makes it so freaking hard. And so in the same way that in our personal lives, you have to find your pack, the most important thing in the business of managing other people's money is to find your pack in your clients. Amen. Yeah. I've lived and died by that. Yep. Right? When I started in the business, quantitative asset management, I would put together a case of maximum diversification, asset allocation, dynamic, tactical, all these reasons why you should have that, eliminate the negative 50% drawdowns and so on. And a short time into it, I started getting that jealousy and shouldn't foot it. I said, I can do one of two things. I could toe the line, or I could fire him. And for whatever reason, I decided to go down the firing path. And in fact, when I started new conversations, I would say, this is how I do things. If you complain about it once, I'm going to fire you. And what ended up happening is I didn't grow as quickly, but I have fantastic clients that never bother me. And I think it's so unique. I just don't, in the wealth management space, it's always about doing what the client's asking you to do. It tends to be about client servicing and it's the client's a unique snowflake, whatever it needs, rather than here are my values. Here's how I want to live my life. Here's how I think I'm going to do best for you. And it's almost like a parent-child relationship where, look, I have the expertise here. I'm going to walk you through this and you're going to come with me as a pack. You're going to understand what I'm doing or you're not. And that has led to an awesome business, but it's not the norm. It's, it's a really difficult thing to do because you do grow slower. You do get into frustration as to why they didn't join the pack. How can you not join the pack? It's so obviously better. And it's particularly hard to grow that sort of business today because we live in a world where scale, it's stultifying. I mean, it's crazy, this world where if you don't have scale, it's so freaking hard to grow. Forget about growing, just to survive Because you're just being squeezed in every possible direction. You're being squeezed by your clients, even if they're believers. You're being squeezed on the market side. You're being squeezed everywhere. And the only, the response to that, the rational, again, business model response to that 
is to go from being a, a squeezee to a squeezer, and you achieve that through massive scale. It is so hard, and it's almost impossible to start and be your own man or own woman in this business today. The pressures, as you say, to toe the line, that could be the pressures that you're getting from your client. That can be the corporate pressures you have as being part of an enormous machine. It can be part of, I find often people think, oh, I'll go try to join a family office because there, you know, I won't have the pressures of clients. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah, your risk just went up exponentially. Oh my God, right? Or I'm going to work for a foundation or endowment or a pension. It's the old Bob Dylan song. We all got to serve somebody. And the important thing is that the people you serve, frankly, be in your pack, that you don't have this instrumental relationship. And I find that a very difficult, if not impossible, thing to achieve within the modern, high-scale, behemoth financial world that we have today. I can't recommend to my own kids that they go into this business. I just can't. No, I mean, you have to be obsessed with an insatiable curiosity about complex systems. And you really do have to be a special kind of personality to want to go into this business now. Yes. With special in, in air quotes. There, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So right. I wanted to continue sort of nudging in the direction of kind of investment conversation. I'm interested in the fact that you sort of started writing what was ostensibly an investment blog and you spent a great deal of your career working in investments and I always found, because I started reading your material pretty well right off the bat when you started writing it, and I found very often that I would read through an article and you'd be making these terrific points. You'd be setting up this incredible framework of how to think about markets and think about the problem, but you wouldn't close a loop. And I think probably that was deliberate because I think you didn't want to be prescriptive. So I'm going to do the uncomfortable thing I'm going to ask you to try and close the loop. And I want to anchor on, and I'm trying to remember the exact term, but you used the words, I think, profound agnosticism, which really resonated with me. And I felt like there was, you could have gone one step further there. And I'd love to know if you were pressed, what would that step be? There are different ways. Uh, I'll describe kind of what I mean by this concept of profound agnosticism. And, and it's really, it's not as simple as it sounds just to say, oh, yeah, you're really agnostic. You're really not predictive. You're really agnostic about stuff. Profound agnosticism means not just that I don't know the answer, but that I believe it is impossible to get the answer with a capital T and a capital A. It's not just difficult. It is impossible. And I've got different ways of approaching that. I wrote this note called the three-body problem, which is this famous problem in geometry. And By the way, just to press pause on yeah, that, yeah, I assume because you wrote that missive around the time when the three-body problem trilogy yes. was emerging into sort of sci-fi culture. Assume you read that trilogy. Favorite, the best... Certainly the best set of books I've read in the last 20 years. So parenthetically, there needs to be an entire other podcast Correct. about how we, I share the exact same feeling about that trilogy and would love to sidebar on that for quite a while. So just as a recommendation, you don't even need to be into sci-fi, <laughs> but highly recommend that book series to 
virtually. Anyway. So I'm, I'm going to mispronounce his name. Kaishin Lu. Kaishin Lu, right? Is that how you pronounce it? It's, that, it's the Kaishin part. I don't know how to pronounce. Yeah, I'm probably wrong too. But what's amazing about, first of all, it's the translation from the original Chinese to English is wonderful. For me, it was so helpful in understanding and getting a glimpse and a window, frankly, into China today. There is a perspective that you find from reading the works of someone from another country, another culture. Our shared touch point is the plot, the science fiction plot here, which is brilliant and deep and revelatory and so many ways that we can do in a, a whole other podcast. And because it's written from this distinct Chinese perspective, that's another aspect of value to this trilogy that I think often goes unappreciated. So yes, there's that trilogy. It's this old mathematics problem. But at the core of the, the science fiction problem posed in the trilogy, at the core of this what's called the three-body problem that Henri Poincaré first set out in the 1800s, is that there are certain, I'll call it problems, certain questions. Let's put it that way. Certain questions you might have about the physical universe that you would think, oh, there's an app for that, right? <laughs> Being, oh, there, there's an algorithm for that. There's a formula. Obviously, there must be a formula that gives me the answer to these very simple questions I might have against, frankly, about, frankly, very simple physical systems, like three objects orbiting in space, where I know everything about them. I know their mass. I know their position. I know their speed. I know their velocity. I know their vectors. I know everything about those three bodies. And yet, there is no formula. There is no algorithm. No analytical solution. There is no closed form solution exactly. yeah. that I can say, okay, at some time T in the future, tell me the position of those three bodies. It does not exist. Now, and this is the profound agnosticism part in, the, in the, what's really is a kind of a head wrapping exercise. We can't predict. There is no closed form solution. We can observe. We can calculate. It's hard for me. So the way that humans, the, the reason I got into investing and playing the game of markets, as I like to describe, was, oh, I'm going to come up with the answer. I'm going to come up with that closed form solution so I can make a shitload of money. And I think that's what motivates so many of what I call us coyotes, to use another animal reference, where we're kind of too clever by half. But that's what drives the world, man. It's the drive and the innovation and the... To solve the problem. To solve the problem, right? And what Poincaré is saying is, well, actually, no, there is no answer. What we can do, and, and, and I, I get people who send me, because you get the three-party problem sometimes comes up in articles, in papers and journals and stuff. And people are saying, aha, this article, the headline says, three-body problem solved. You look at it, no, what it is, is it's a better computer system for calculating the future states of these three bodies. Probabilistically. Probabilistically. And frankly, you can get it within a, a margin of error, right, that's incredibly small and the like. This is what massive computing processing power can do. It can observe and we can simulate the world. and. 
There's so many implications of this, of again, what I'm calling about profound agnosticism, where it's not even that it's difficult to get the answer. The answer does not exist. And I think the most important way, at least for me, in which has changed my view of the markets and how to think about investing, is that we have, again, embedded us with as human beings this model of the market as what I like to call a clockwork, what Ray Dalio calls a machine. That is our mental model of what the market is. And I will tell you that is false. That mental model that we think of it as a clockwork, the gears, the parts, if X, then Y, that is a mental model of the closed form solution. I'll give you another model a model we don't think about, but I think is absolutely the model that's correct for markets. The market is a bonfire. The market is a bonfire. The hardest thing in computer games was always like, how do you generate waves, right? Or how do you generate fire or water? Because they're both fluids. And they're emergent. They're emergent. There is no formula for a fire, but you can calculate a fire. And again, it's that switch is thinking about, okay, it's not a formula, but it is a calculation. That's what massive it's a simulation computer, really is. It's absolutely a simulation. You're walking so, it forward step by step because you don't know what the future is until you walk what it forward. Are, what is the purpose for the supercomputers, the most biggest and fastest supercomputers in the world? The purpose, they're built by the Department of Energy. Why? They are built to simulate nuclear bomb explosions. That has been the driving purpose, not just in the United States, but for the development of the biggest and best supercomputers to simulate nuclear explosions, to simulate fire. This should be our mental model of markets, not as a clockwork, not as a set of closed form solutions, but instead these dynamic emergent systems, we should no more think that we can predict the shape of this, the sparks of a bonfire would be. We'd never even think to try that. What we would think to do is, okay, if that spark is in position XYZ on this coordinate, and I know everything about the system, is there a computer that can tell me at in one millisecond from now where that spark would be? Absolutely. That's what I mean about calculating. And that's what we do with simulations That's what we do with the supercomputers to test nuclear explosions, right? It's a very different model, mental model. And we can go down so many different paths on this, but I think that the future of our understanding of markets and being effective investors is to change our mental model of what's possible in our analysis of markets. And it starts with this concept of profound agnosticism, that not only is it hard or difficult to come up with the answer, the answer does not exist. So you're still being slippery, but I actually am going to go, I'm going to go one, <laughs> one level deeper here because I think it's even more complex, and I know you agree, but it's even more complex than the bonfire because the bonfire's behavior doesn't change by virtue of a person being able to model its behavior. So what's so interesting about markets is it is both emergent and complex, but it's also affected by how people choose to try to To solve the problem and understand it. That's true. This is the reflexivity that George Soros talks about. And Soros is the one I usually quote when I'm talking about profound agnosticism. Because 
Shoros has got a great quote, and I wish I could do the accent, but I really can't, so I'll just do it straight in my kind of weird southern boy who's been in Connecticut for 20 years accent. So he was asked, I don't think this was around the British pound escapades for Soros. I think it was another currency. Maybe it was the Thai bot or something like that. But somebody was asking him, because Soros was giving his analysis of currency situation, why he had the positions on it. He did. And somebody asked him, well, well, how do you say that? How, how, how can you predict something like that? He said in his gravel voice, you know, young man, you know, I'm not predicting, I'm observing. I'm not predicting, I'm observing. Mm-hmm. And that is just hit home for me so many times. That is what we should be doing. I'm, I'm really not trying to be slippery here. No, right? no, I'm with, just going to, I, I think right? really what you did is sort of define profound agnosticism, why we should embrace that perspective. And so I'm just going to drill one level down and sort of say, well, what practical steps can investors take? How can they create a framework for allocating capital that is consistent with the view of profound agnosticism? So this is one reason why I'm a big fan of, let's put it in that kind of bucket of, let's call it risk parity strategies, where there is a profound agnosticism to a, and again, I, we can if you guys want to, because you guys are- 100% want to. A thousand, well, you know, so well-versed in this, this whole world of what risk parity means. But at its core, what risk parity means is, I'm going to observe, I'm going to react, I'm going to react systematically, but I am not predicting. I am not saying, oh, I think the world's going to look like X six months from now, and so I want to position myself for that. There's a profound agnosticism. This gets back to our notion of why it's so hard, I think, to build a business around risk parity. I've experienced that firsthand. You guys have experienced that firsthand. Risk parity, in whatever flavor or form you're talking about doing it, is at its core a reactive approach to markets. And so when you're trying to describe that to your clients, your clients want you to have a view, right? They say, well, you know, I'm paying you because, like you're saying, Rodrigo, this is, this is what you do full time, and I'm entrusting you with this, so I'm trusting your view of the world. I want you to predict that's your edge, right? That you've got this prediction, this view about the world, and I think it's likely to be correct. And so I'm giving you money. And you're saying what you are saying with a risk parity strategy is I don't have a view. I don't know. I freaking don't know what the future is going to be. What I'm going to try to do, though, with this strategy is I'm going to try to, I'll say, harvest what I can from the world's markets in as efficient a way as I can. But I'm in the business of observing, not predicting. Yeah, the idea of maximum diversification. And like Bernstein said, diversification is an explicit recognition of our ignorance. That's it. I mean, what's so amazing to us is that we don't really do this much anymore because we don't really prioritize the conversation around a pure risk parity strategy anymore. But, But we don't because that was never something that was bought right? It's the most incredible experience to walk through a presentation that gives all the reasons why we should we should maintain this view of profound agnosticism. So go through all the examples of market forecasters and how they've been worse than random, all of Tetlock's work about how it's not unique to markets, but it's true in all these other complex fields, expert political judgment, 
talk about the Fed's forecasts of interest rates. They set interest rates. They can't even predict the direction of rates six months hence. So you go through all of these different examples of why markets can't be predicted. You build this framework for this profoundly agnostic portfolio, this global risk parity portfolio. You demonstrate its empirical efficacy over whatever, 100 years. And all the while, a person is nodding along. They're getting it. They're making the right noises. This is clearly something that they're connecting with. And at the end, so what do you think is the best course of action? Well, yeah, this I'll seems watch. smart, but that's yeah. not for me. Yeah. <laughs> this is when you just fire Pull them Pull on that thread away. for me. What, what's going on there? So let's do the counterexample. Let's think of the, an example of an incredibly successful, from a business perspective, risk parity strategy. Let's talk about Bridgewater for a second and the all-weather fund. Enormous fund. The point of bringing this up is not to dig into the particulars of of Bridgewater. Bridgewater, all that you describe, the modeling and, you know, here's the examples and doesn't that make sense? And here's examples from other fields and all that. uh uh That's not why institutions put money with Bridgewater, is it? (laughs) Right? No, it's the no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Well, I think it's actually even more than that, because there is, I'm going to call it, again, a mythology, and I don't mean to say that this is false. I mean mythology in the technical sense. There's a narrative, there's a story, there's a mythology around Bridgewater. There's an origin story for Bridgewater, with Ray sitting in his apartment and writing his daily observations. There's the mythology of, oh my God, it's these market monks who are the smartest people in the world. The mythology around Bridgewater is that it's the biggest and they're the smartest, which is a little different from IBM, right? (laughs) IBM was the biggest and they were the behemoth, but the mythology around IBM was never, oh my God, these are the ninja monk warriors of brilliance. I'll have to take your word for it. Yeah. Yeah. Right, 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 right. right. I know they certainly aren't now. (laughs) Yes. I wonder if they were in the sixties, but anyways, yeah. No, yeah, no, they were, they were just the behemoth. There is this mythology around Bridgewater, and that's why it works for them. There's a mythology around AQR, frankly. Let's call it for that. Our business, again, is what story are you telling to your clients and what gives them that warm and fuzzy feeling that you are the person to give their money to? Because you've told them, I don't have a view. You've told them, I'm not a wizard. And yet... Bridgewater and AQR are based on the notion that there's a wizard, that there's a wizard. But there's also the reality that they are not selling extreme agnosticism. They're selling, they're they're, they're slipping in their active and charging a ton of money and saying, hey, you can do the risk parity thing, but risk parity plus my genius is where it's at. And that's what AQR has done. That's what everybody needs to do to thrive. And even AQR has, we've spoken to the guys at AQR, the worst selling product is risk parity. Oh, absolutely. It right. Is. And yet all the principles, that's their core holding. Yeah. Well, certainly the origin story of Ray Dalio and, and All Weather was when I die, I trust nobody to manage my money actively. And therefore, what is the, the most agnostic way to manage where nobody can screw it up and it comes down to risk parity. But ultimately to run a business, it needs to be tied into this idea that there's a machine that can be solved. Mm-hmm. I think I may have mentioned this to you guys before. I used to be this kind of weak form narrativist where I thought that, oh, well, you know, narratives are important, right? But it's really, 
whether it's the fundamentals of the security of a company and the market or whether it's the fundamentals of my business plan that matters. Then I became a, a semi-strong narrativist, meaning that, well, yeah, these narratives are kind of a lot, these stories and origin stories are a lot more important than I thought they were. And they go on for a really long time. But I still think that ultimately it's the merits of my strategy, the empirical evidence I can show. Honest to God, I've now become a strong form narrativist to say that if it doesn't exist in story, it doesn't exist, not in our real world. And I go back and forth on, well, what does one do about that? Fortunately, I think, and I think you guys are living proof of this, is that to have a life that is self-sustaining, and I mean that in both an economic sense and a, I'll call it philosophical sense, but I mean that an emotional sense, self-sustaining, it is possible to construct that and to find your pack right, of people who believe in your story because there's a meta level to this. So presenting the empiricism, the research, and being so transparent about here's what we do, that is in itself a story. It's not appealing. It doesn't have the mass appeal of the wizard story that Dalio used that people crave. But it is a story, and you will find your pack, and you, again, can make a business that is both self-sustaining economically and, and emotionally. It will not, however, it will never, ever, never scale to a really big thing. And if that's what you need for fulfillment, then you got to find a different path. In this business throughout the last 10 years, one of the biggest frustrations I, I see from asset managers is this idea that the markets are rigged. You just can't make money looking at fundamentals, which is the way it should be. And yet they continue to bang their heads against the wall trying to find that quality company that has all the right numbers that is going to get them. It's, someday it's going to end. But I think what you've accomplished, and I want to actually talk about the clustering. Yeah, sure. I think you've been able to cross that chasm to the other side, becoming a strong foreign narrativist where it's not about whether it's right or wrong that the market's rigged. It's what you can do even though the market is rigged by following those narratives and trying to find solutions to that three-body problem that you can observe and react to. And so instead of looking at company fundamentals, you're now having to follow the fiat news, right? <laughs> and see what's so, so here's the way I like to think about it. So I understand why, yeah, I'm not picking on, Ray Dalio, but the, I understand both the appeal of this model of the economic machine and thinking of markets as a clockwork. I understand why that's such an attractive mental model for us to have. I also understand why it's been successful because in most periods of time, no circumstances, it works. It works. The connection or the analog I'd like to draw is between Newtonian physics and Einsteinian physics. Newtonian physics is essentially a model of the universe of physics that is a clockwork. That is Newtonian physics. And under almost all real world circumstances, it works. I'll give you another example. My avatar on Twitter is Ptolemy, the most famously wrong, misguided scientist of all time, right? right? So it's, it's kind of my wink at this stuff. But the fact is, is that if your need is to sail your 
ship from Ostia to Piraeus on the Mediterranean in 300 AD. Newtonian mechanics will do a really good job with that. Newtonian mechanics will do just fine, and Ptolemaic astronomy will do just fine. Just fine. His understanding and theory of why it worked was totally wrong, but it got you from point A to point B. Got you from point A to point B, Mm -hmm. right. To bring it forward to, okay, well, what did Einstein do? Well, he said, well, actually, in, I'll call it kind of edge cases, like when you get close to the speed of light, Newtonian physics, right, right out the window. If you're on a starship, you're trying to understand the world and you're mired in your clockwork analogy and your Newtonian physics, it ain't going to work for you. It just ain't going to work for you. And so that's what I, I like to think of my view of, again, I'm going to call it narrative world, the stories we tell. And what I mean by being a strong form narrativist, where it's all story all the time, is that most times the the story world, you know, which is kind of encompassing of clockwork world, most of the time, Einsteinian physics doesn't come into play. But everything that is in Newtonian physics is incorporated in Einsteinian physics. And it also explains what's going on when you get into these really bizarro times, right? Extreme cases. We're in one of those extreme cases. We've been in one of those extreme cases since the great financial crisis and the policy reactions to that. It's not that Newtonian physics is wrong ever. It's never wrong. It's whether it's more or less useful. And this model of markets as a clockwork, this mental model we have at the market, and not just the mental model, the actual investment models that we have are not very useful in these conditions that we're in. So what I'm trying to do in my research is to say, look, there is There's a layer above and beyond the clockwork model. And we now have tools to both visualize and measure that story world, narrative world, whatever you want to call it, the translation between us as investment professionals and the real world is always this layer of story and how it's being presented to us. So that's my focus. It it starts at kind of this big level of, all right, You've been living in the Newtonian world. We're in this Einstein in this relativistic world now. And so we've got to expand our purview, right, to get that, our tool set to survive and and to manage other people's money effectively. That's what I'm trying to do. And so you've got this tool. What do you call it? Well, you know, it's not my tool. No, I know. It's a tool that you use and you use, I think, to great effect. And it's very interesting. So it's like so much of science. It's a very old idea and it's called Natural Language Processing, NLP. And this is stuff I was doing 30 years ago. This has been my professional career in all of its different incarnations, academia, software companies, now you know, investing world. And the idea is, well, how do we understand what we'll call unstructured data? It means if it doesn't live in a database, it's not something that you're getting off of a spreadsheet. It's the messages, the words, the text, the signals that we receive as a social animal tens of thousands of times a day. And what means natural means we take it as it is. We're not imposing some form of structure on these texts. We actually talk about it in terms of a bag of text, an article or a transcript Think of it as a bag of text. 
a jumble of words and grammatical structures. And what we want to do is we want to compare the words and grammatical structures of one bag of text with the words and grammatical structures of lots of other bags of text. Again, 30 years ago, I was hiring undergrads to go look at microfiche and read newspaper articles and then write down a summary and transcribe. And I'd go to this, it was literally a Fortran where it was on a digital equipment mini frame for if there's anyone listening to this who remembers that company, digital equipment. Two things have changed to revolutionize this approach to understanding unstructured data. The first is, I'll call it big data. So now it's not sending in undergrads to read microfiche. You can literally, you tap into the Dow Jones feed, you tap into the LexisNexis feed. It's all there. All of it is just there. Tens of thousands of bags of text every day. The second, but actually the more important thing that's changed is not big data, but what I'll call big compute. So the ability to plug into the wall and get as much processing power as I want from AWS, from Azure, to apply tens of thousands of microprocessors to a problem and in exactly the same way that I plug into the wall and get electricity. That's been the biggest change because what you have to understand is that natural language processing is not AI. It's not machine learning. It is brute force mathematical comparisons of words and grammatical structures. That's I think what there's a case is. to make that it's a form of unsupervised learning, especially the way that you use it for the clusters that you build and, and that sort of thing. But you can apply kind of layers of that on top of it. I'll say particularly in the interpretation and to design, I'll call it kind of an executive topology almost of the narrative. Well, what you might want to do, because you're not predicting, you're, you're calculating, observing. And this is the way that I think that most effective AI programs work. So the AI program that wins Go tournaments is not one single massive superhuman brain. That's not how it works. You have an executive function module. You have the short-term calculation module or engine. You have medium to intermediate term. So there is, particularly in that executive function module of an AI, there is supervised learning and the like that you can do to try to improve your play of the game. What I'm talking about, though, is just the, the engine here is a brute force. I'm comparing this word to that word. It's a factorial when you're comparing everything to everything else. So the numbers get crazy large, crazy fast. So quick example, I've got a thousand articles. Each article has a thousand words. That would actually be a small set to look at. That's a thousand factorial. That's half a trillion calculations. And what's possible today, and this is what's truly revolutionary, is I can plug into the wall effectively and I can calculate that. I'm snapping my fingers right now. It takes me about two seconds to compare all of those words and grammatical structures. And the output from that is a freaking enormous matrix of all the linguistic relationships between every article and every other article. And on top of that, then you apply, there's nothing new under the sun. These are old matrix algebra techniques then of essentially you're finding the shortest distance between, that's one of the major calculations you're making is the shortest distance between those relationship connections between what we'll call the nodes of this gigantic matrix. 
And again, because you're able to tap into AWS or, or Azure, you're able to do it like that. It's a different kind of math than I think most quants are used to in markets, which is why I think we, and here I'm talking about my company, right? I think we're doing some interesting stuff because it's, it's stuff that's been done forever, right, in Matrix Algebra, but it is a new thing in our world of, of investing. And what are you deriving? How are you using the information? Well, so the first thing to understand is that, again, it's not predictive. In and of itself, it's not, there's nothing predictive here. Sure. It is not, and this is so important, it's not an input into your regression, <laughs> right? Which is why this whole approach, I think some of the, the smartest, most brilliant quants I know are at places like a Two Sigma or D Shaw. And they use natural language processing, but in a very different way. So if it can't generate an output that can be put into this whatever relative value model they're doing that they've regressed out to say, okay, here's what we want to do. It could be interesting, but it doesn't fit for them. It doesn't fit their business model. So the way we're approaching this and the sort of calculations we're making, these relationships of we try to do both visualizations and then measurements of the structure, again, of what I'll call narrative world, all these messages that immerse us. It is not something that you crank through a regression model. <laughs> and that I find is the biggest barrier I have when I'm talking about this with like somebody at a Two Sigma or a Shaw, really very excellent quants and really understand this, but it's very different from how we've approached, I'll say, the quantitative exercise in the past. Where I think it is really useful, though, is in seeing the bonfire. It's in seeing the dynamics of this, because you can see these, again, I'll call them clusters, these related, the typical mathematical transformation you make on this is that you think about the shared linguistics as essentially the equivalent of a gravitational pull. So when I talked about shortest distance, that's another way to think about basically gravity. And so in these visualizations, you get these like star charts because they look like a galaxy with like clusters of stars here and clusters of stars there. And I like that analogy because really the, the intuition here is that to think about the shared linguistic characteristics as being like a gravitational pull. And like the three-body problem in astronomy and, and geometry, you're not evaluating this because you're going to say, aha, I'm going to use that as an input to create my model, my clockwork model of what's happening next. I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know what narratives are going to come up and the like, but I can tell you that I can now react. I can observe these narratives. I can tell you how these narratives impact our human behavior as investors or as voters. And then I can invest or analyze on that basis. It's a very different way of looking at it. It really is a way of thinking about the world as a bonfire where I have no chance of predicting what this fire is going, what this narrative world is going to look like a week from now. I don't know. But that doesn't mean that I can't interact with the world so much better for seeing the world as it is through this new lens and understanding how these narratives are like their own life form. We talk about memes. That's the notion of a meme, that it's like a, it's like a living thing, that it propagates. It's like a virus. 
what we're seeing here, you think of these narrative clusters and this narrative visualization as like a microscope. We're actually able to see memes, right? And and we know how they impact us, and it changes your whole take on what's happening in the world. It, it, it's like suddenly beginning the oh, I can now see ultraviolet. Okay, so I want to pull on that thread a little bit. So it's like the random walk. The best prediction of tomorrow's price is today's price. You're not predicting, you're observing, and then you're reacting. I want to- And I can recalculate. And, and recalculate. Based on, so I, I want to get into that a little bit. So is the utility of it useful intellectually so that you can have a conversation and have a narrative for your clients and know what to talk about? Or is there an investment utility of knowing what that cluster represents right now and acting on that? So what we want and what I want is to be able to say- and I think I can say this in some respects. All right, what I'm seeing here is a signal. The bridge here, when, I, when this kind of narrative is coming up and it's got this sort of life cycle, this kind of life history to it, that's going to impact investors in a certain way. And let's get in front of that. Let's get in front of that. And that's absolutely possible. Absolutely possible. Because the business model of Wall Street is why we call it the sell side. The business model is to sell. And to sell... They have to construct and promote and distribute memes, ideas, stories, narratives. What's your best idea? Every active manager in the world always goes, you know, what's your best idea? And this is what Wall Street, the business of Wall Street is built on this. And so you can see, you can literally see these quote unquote best ideas, bye, bye, bye on financial sector. You can see that narrative born, grow, live, sometimes multiply into different variations of that theme, and then die. What's interesting about that is that it is almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not the best idea. The best idea is one that's just the best idea. What they're creating is an idea that requires buy-in, and buy-in requires clustering of narratives so that when they talk to their three sales side guys, they're all kind of saying the same thing. And then we're like, oh, well, they agree, I'm in. But they've created this flow, I imagine. The weirdness of this to me is when you, you force me to watch something like CNBC, <laughs> which we, we started off this God, conversation. God, who forced you to do that? Right, right? <laughs> I feel like it's my job. And so we started off talking about how CNBC, 24-7, you have to find the programming. That's the business model. And so how do you fill that programming? by bringing in people to give their stories, to give their stories. Mm -hmm. And the goal of everyone who goes on CNBC is that their story becomes a narrative. Everyone that goes on CNBC has got a little snowball at the top of the hill, and they're hoping that their snowball gets picked up by others and that, that ultimately it becomes a really big snowball, that it becomes a narrative. That's the business model. What's so weird to me is that they bring on a lot of people to CNBC including some of their regulars, who their big shtick is, all right, and it's a shtick I agree with, that, well, no, you don't want to be picking stocks. You just want to be in the market. You want to harvest these risk premia. They don't, we'd never use that word because that would be crazy, right? You want to own the market. And, say, and yet they're on a show where then they say, oh, and yeah, and my best idea is XYZ company. It's like, come on, guy. I mean, we have to embrace that cognitive dissonance a few times too. We go on BNN and it's not really our shtick to give individual sector or ETF advice, but that's what the people demand. That's what they demand because that is the business model. That's the business model. So you can't get 
away from that because that is the business model. So long as that effort is being made, no one's going to arb out what I'm talking about here. This is the way our business works, the creation of stories, because, again, this is why we call it the sell side. You got to have something to sell. If everybody says, okay, yeah, I'm going to own the market. I'm going to go home now. There's no reason for CNBC to exist. There's no reason for a Wall Street firm to exist. You have to create narrative demand, (laughs) right, to do something. And that's what I think we're picking up here. Very interesting. We were looking at the clusters last night. Yeah. You would show us periods where these clusters of stars would be very dispersed. And one of the things you said was, in these dispersed areas where there's a very narrow set of knowledge about Russian... German nat gas trading. That was example, excuse yeah. Where there is value of being that fundamental manager just seeking truth outside of narrative, that we're actually fundamentals matter. And then this transitions into a global story that dominates all the narrative, and it's a risk on, risk off when those satellite systems become one glob of one narrative moving everything, at which point that manager that had the fundamentals- Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He needs to move towards, okay, we're in a narrative system now. Forget about the fundamentals. Let's go risk on or risk off, whatever that is. And listen, that is active management writ large for the last 10 years. That is the failure of of active discretionary management. It's not that, and I'm including myself in this, I was an active discretionary manager, a long, short manager. And we didn't get dumb. It's that our models are based on Newtonian physics, where if we're left alone, meaning if there is not an overarching dominant narrative or story that's being an agenda that's being pushed, pushed onto us, we'll do fine. We'll do fine because we'll do all this work and we'll think really hard and really smart guys and gals and That worked for a lot of years. That's how Newtonian physics works. We knew our little piece of the clockwork. And when that changed in the aftermath of the great financial crisis, all of our smarts, all of our time, all of our effort, it's been for bupkis. So I think we all agree that the market's changed. The people in this room believe that the market as we used to think about the market, is broken. But I think we also agree that as you've moved on from being sort of a professional investor, but I think you would still agree that if you do continue to hold yourself out as a professional investor, that it is not sufficient to use the fact that the market is, let's call it broken, as an excuse for why you're not delivering value. Right on, brother. And frankly, this is, it's the tension that so many smart people have with the market as it is, which is that I know everything there is to know about, we were talking about, you know, Russian, I'm a nat gas trader, and I know everything there is to know about this particular market that I trade. It's not fair, it's not right that that knowledge and that investment and that the smarts that I'm devoting that, it's not fair that it doesn't matter anymore for price. But it is. So what you have to do, what one must do, is adapt or go do something else. Lots of people are going to do something else. I've gone to do something else. It is impossible for me to reconcile 
what I know is necessary to be a good steward of other people's money, which is to play along with the game. That's what's required. Since I don't, I'm fortunate enough to have something else to do so that I don't have to do this. So I ain't going to do it. I fundamentally identify with that journey. I mean, I remember coming out of 2008 and having been completely immersed and obsessed with what was happening and with the fundamentals of the problem, the fundamentals of the cracks in the balance sheets of the banks, the cracks in the mortgage market, et cetera, getting a lot of those bets right. And then having the authority step in and completely change the game. And that was a shattering experience for me. And I was really, really angry for a really long time. And just sort of going back to being no fun at dinner parties. And I remember being that guy who was saying, this is a broken system and they are now taking steps to kick the can on the broken system. And I was just incensed. And there was an existential question for me. Am I going to go do something else? And I very seriously contemplated it. And somebody recommended to me, listen, you've got a lot to say on this. You're clearly very well-versed in what's happening, you should write about it. That was the motivation for me to start the blog, and it was absolutely cathartic. And what it allowed me to do is, by virtue of expression and sharing and finding a pack that way, is now I can be open to other ways of thinking, open to new ideas. Then it was, wow, I discovered Philip Tetlock, I discover systematic thinking, and it opens up an entire new set of possibilities that 10 years later has led to what we've currently built, which is really fun and I think really legitimate and is able to successfully navigate the current environment. But I had to reinvent myself to be able to do that. It was not possible for me to do it with the old framework that I was operating. Right. You were a Newtonian and that process allowed you to move towards Einstein's theories. And I think what you're accomplishing right now with your narrative, with the work that you're doing, is you're grabbing a bunch of Newtonians that are at that point of giving up. Because what happens is we never stop talking about how unfair it is that the market is rigged. We just know that, but play the game for the success of our clients, which is satisfying. And there's nothing satisfying about being fundamentally right that it's rigged and it sucks and not completing your duties for your clients. It's just, it's soul crushing. And so what you're doing, this transition from, hey, Newtonians, we need to move to this other place. You need to accept it. It may be unfair, but it is. It's not right. It's not wrong. It may be wrong, like you said, right. but it, it is. It makes me sad. It's this sad, is, but it, it makes absolutely, me sad. Absolutely, yes. And it still does. And I avoid having these conversations oh my because God. it continues to make me angry. I cannot share global macro narratives with Adam most of the time. It's like, if I get into this, it will just, I can't. Well, and it makes me even sadder when we get beyond market world. We start talking about our political lives, for sure. I'll tell you, see, this is, it's a conversation I've had on a couple of podcasts and other people around, of all things, Bitcoin. 
because there's another group that knows this notion of shaking your hand at the clouds. Shouting at the clouds is the the Simpsons meme is shows. And that's gold bugs. Let's call them that, right? Because you know, and I'm so sympathetic to the I'll call it the true believers in gold. I'm I'm very sympathetic to that. But what I keep coming back to, particularly the devotees, let's call it a physical gold. It's a miserable way to live. It's a miserable way to live. And I see that happening in the Bitcoin community when the positive energy around Bitcoin was being transferred to, oh, it's digital gold. It's a store of value. And you see them being really balkanized. You see them being ghettoized in the same way that gold believers have been ghettoized by mainstream media, by economics profession, by the investments business. And you may be right, but it's a miserable way to live to be, in a very real sense, hoping to be proved right through a terrible economic collapse. It's just a miserable way to live, and it can turn you into a miserable person. It's hard because so many of us have spent so much effort and time in, in our really our lives trying to figure out the puzzle to master our little piece of the Newtonian physics clockwork. And then to have it not matter, it's hard. It can make you bitter. And that's where Neb Tana came from was the bitterness I was feeling at the way my world had changed over seven or eight years mm-hmm. in slow incremental fashion until one day you wake up and you think, I'm not the same person that I was, and I need to get Ben Hunt back and leave Neb Tana behind. Last night, we were at a dinner that was hosted by Warata Asset Management. This yeah. is a Toronto hedge fund firm, awesome firm, very successful, and, and clearly you have a strong relationship with them. This dinner came about, it was 30 of us, roughly, and it came about from a letter that you wrote a few months back saying, I want to continue to expand this pack idea. And I'd love you to tell us a little bit about what you're trying to do there. Let everybody know what the concept is and how you're trying to help. Because this is all about from the Newtonian physics to the, what we spoke about in the beginning. What's your mission right and, now? And this is, this is true for your guys' podcast and the stuff I do with Epsilon Theory. There is a hunger for people to know that they're not alone. I started, I've told this story a lot, but it bears repeating. I, I started writing Epsilon Theory six and a half, seven years ago, and I sent out the first note to about 100 people. We've never done any marketing. We've never done any pushing on this. Never bought an ad, nothing of that. And so purely through word of mouth, we've got 100,000 people now that are signed up for the email. I think I'm a pretty good writer. I think I was a really good portfolio manager. I think I'm a better writer, (laughs) frankly, right? But that's not why it's striking a chord. It's striking a chord because there are so many of us out there. We just don't know if the person sitting next to us is part of our pack. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make it easier for people to self-identify, frankly, as one of these people who's trying to make their way in the world, but is not a part of the flock. (laughs) It's not a part of the flock. And just on that note, what I found really refreshing last night is at the end, we ended up with a table of six, seven, and it wasn't just Ben speaking, saying things, everybody nodding and saying, hey, alleluia, amen. It was, there was pushback. 
There was differing opinions. There was, like you said, a safe space. That's what a pack is. To argue, to get closer to the truth, whatever your truth it, is. Where it's possible to disagree vehemently on things, but because you see that person not as a means to an end, but as a full-hearted human being just like you are, that you can engage with that person with full hearts, meaning you say, you're, I think you're a great person. I just disagree with you on this, and we can talk about it. And we don't, I don't have to convince you, and you don't have to convince me. And that's okay. It's freaking okay. Yeah, you don't have an agenda. Yeah, right. I'm not using you. I don't need you to buy into this because I need you to buy something for me, or I need you to vote for me, or I need you to, or if you're not willing to do that, you're on the other side. So I, I do a lot of traveling whenever I go to a, a city or a town or whatever. I try to get a group together. It's almost always around a meal or drinks because that's an important part of this sort of personal connection is to break bread. There's a reason that phrase exists. It's really true. And to let people make a physical connection with other people in their geographic area so you know, oh, you're part of the pack. You're part of the pack. I don't have to go through the difficult process of leaving yourself open to get hit and taken in a loss to find out if you're one of us. No, by coming here, I can extend trust to you that I can disagree with you. We can have an open conversation about anything, and we're not going to think you're a bad person. You're not ever going to get canceled. So I mentioned this note. Look, anybody puts together 20 people, town, cities, and where, I'll be there. I'll be there. Because it, at least at this stage, I think it's helpful for me to be there in person and kind of to get the ball rolling. But what we've seen now in L.A. and Chicago and Milwaukee and Boston and, and I hope now Toronto is that these packs, they have a life of their own. Mm -hmm. they, they don't grow. need you anymore. They don't need me anymore. That's what is really great. They don't need me anymore. And I'm telling you guys, this is how the world changes. It's slow it's frustratingly slow a lot of times, but it, it really is how things change. So we're like Fight Club, except in this case, you are encouraged to talk. The first rule you're encouraged to talk about. The first rule is talk about it. First rule is talk about it. Well, I think that was absolutely tremendous. I'm hoping that we can go to lunch and be able to chat about the Three Body Problem book, but I don't know. You might have to go before we get a chance but uh, we'll have to do it another time well let's i'll do this anytime this was fantastic guys yeah. thank you thank really you, appreciate it yeah that was thank an you. awesome conversation thank you bye thank you for listening to the gestalt university podcast you will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog you can also learn more about resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.